This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Claudia Fleming is one of the most beloved pastry chefs in America. Trained at the Union Square Cafe and Fauchon in Paris, Claudia gained international acclaim as the pastry chef at the three-star Gramercy Tavern with Thomas Colicchio. She is credited with blending the sweet and savory in her remarkable desserts, with chocolate caramel tarts and sea salt among her most famous. Her book, The Last Course, The Desserts of Gramercy Tavern, became a cult classic and just republished to great fanfare. Claudia is also the winner of the coveted James Beard Outstanding Pastry Chef Award. Coming up, you'll hear how reading Nancy Silverton's book changed her life. And you'll hear how to make the perfect caramel. From a former ballerina to an international superstar pastry chef, this is Claudia's story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. I am so excited to have Claudia Fleming in my kitchen with me today. I've known Claudia's reputation for decades. I believe she is considered one of the best pastry chefs in America, was given the Best Outstanding Pastry Chef Award by the James Beard Organization, was named the top 10 pastry chefs, or one of them, in America, is the author of an extraordinary book called The Last Course, which is kind of a cult book among pastry chefs. And it was just reissued. Everyone's very excited. But I am particularly happy because I get a chance to sit with Claudia face-to-face today and talk about a life that's been thrilling and challenging and um, delicious and sad and salty all at the same time, (laughs) just like her pastries. In fact, Claudia, I do want to say that there's a quote, there's such a wonderful article that just came out recently about you in the New York Times by Julia Moskin. And I quote, this is Julia, cooking skills are easy enough to learn, but to carve a path like Miss Fleming, a chef needs two things that cannot be taught, a great palate, and a deranged sense of perfectionism. <laughs> I Welcome. do love that quote. What do you think? <laughs> I think I am delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm very excited to have a conversation right now with you. Yeah, that it's it's pretty thrilling, this re-release. You know, who knew 20 years ago that after it went out of print, there was going to be a demand for it. But luckily for me, there was. And yeah, it's just been received so enthusiastically, and I couldn't be happier or feel more honored. Claudia, the book came out originally in 2001. Yes. It is called The Last Course, 
The Desserts of Gramercy Tavern, mm-hmm. uh, written obviously by you and with Melissa Clark. So that's a really winning combination. How lucky um, was I? <laughs> exactly. I think she just wrote a new one, and it's her 42nd cookbook. Yeah. She's pretty remarkable. Prolific. I want to talk about everything, your childhood and how you got started, but I also want to share an observation that I made since doing this show. And it's such a surprise, but it turns out that between 10 and 15% of our guests who are in the business, who are chefs or pastry chefs, started out to be ballet dancers. No way. And I just read that about you. Wow. I know. Because, right, there's an association very often between women, pastry chefs, maybe being artists and uh, going to graduate school in art and then dropping out of that or changing and becoming pastry chefs. But the dancing and the ballet thing was fascinating to me. So what a great place to start. As a child, you wanted to be a ballet dancer. So where did you grow up? How did this happen? Well, I grew up on Long Island in New York. It was the 60s. And I have no idea why I went to ballet classes. I actually asked my mother at a certain point when I was older. And she said, Oh, I don't know. You just sent your little girl to ballet school. That's what you did. I said, Oh, she said, you just happened to like it more than most. And so you just kept going. So it wasn't like anybody had any dreams of me becoming a, a dancer. It was just... Did you, in fact, at, at one point, have you got I to did. be so oh, good yes. at it? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, one quickly learns that it takes a most exceptional, exceptional person to become a professional dancer. And I just, you know, I did not have the drive or the motivation or the talent to do so. Do you think it's even harder today? It seems like with so many performing arts, mm. uh, almost like Olympic sports, I think it gets even more challenging to be a really world-class ballet dancer or musician anything, or a pastry anything. chef. So there are lots <laughs> of connections there. Yeah. I'm not so sure if I were starting out today, if I would have the same success that I had 20 years ago. It seems that, you know, with every generation, techniques get better, you know, equipment gets better. Everything just gets better. I mean, I'm not sure Babe Ruth would be Babe Ruth today. You know, I mean, look at athletes. Look at athletes now. They are just trained so incredibly. And I I think that that continues to evolve. And the bar keeps getting higher Higher and and higher. higher. So at some point you decided perhaps that you would not be a ballet dancer. And uh, did you go to college? How did the food thing happen? Well, I always worked in restaurants to pay the rent, like all struggling wannabe artists. And I loved it. You know, most people I worked with were actors, um, musicians and the like, and they all hated it. You know, servers back then were notorious for not, you know, not wanting to be, you know, I should be on the stage. I should be. I kind of always liked it. And but that was front of the house. I worked as a server. And where was your first job? My first job was at a place called Dannon's on the Park. And it was at 81st and Columbus, right across the street from Dino De Laurentiis's food show. Oh my goodness. Do you remember of that? Of course I do. That was so ahead of its time. The DDL the food DDL show. The DDL food show. And that 
was one of the first experiences walking into DDL, not Downins on the Park, forgive me, people that own Downins on the Park, but it, it wasn't, you know, a culinary mecca. Whereas DDL was, I mean, it was, it was incredible. theater. It was fantastic. It was. It was, yes. And it was, unsupportable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was a while before I would explore that further. So, but I did work with a woman at Dannon's whose boyfriend was a chef and he worked at La Boite en Bois. Do you remember that? Place? Absolutely. That was a wonderful little <laughs> yes. jewel box. Right? Jewel box, right? Yes, of a restaurant. And the maitre d there was leaving to open up a restaurant called Jams. Remember Jams? Oh, my goodness. And she said, so I'm going to go interview at this place and it's going to be really great and and." I had a lot of respect for her. She was a struggling opera singer <laughs> and just lovely. And, you know, her boyfriend was a chef. So there was lots of food conversation that I was increasingly becoming interested in. And they would have dinner parties. So she said, you should go. You should go interview. I was like, I don't know. It's just I was very intimidated. And this was for front of the house or back of the house? Front of the house. It was for front of the house. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I did and was hired. And, you know, Jams was... So this is Jonathan Waxman. This is Jonathan Waxman. Who is a culinary superstar in New York with Jams and was Melvin Masters his partner? That, okay. Yep. Melvin. Uh, Front of the house, wine guy. Also uh, the dynamic duo. And then he went to California, came back, opened Barbudo. Closed. It's opening again. All very exciting. So it's interesting, Claudia, how things just come around again when yep. we least expect it. So you worked at Jams. I worked at Jams, and you know that was just so eye-opening. You know, baby vegetables, uh, free-range chicken, goat cheese. You know, duck breast salad, just like all these things that who ever heard of these things? It was so new at the time. So right? And this was new. truly California cuisine yes. brought to the East Coast. Exactly. And I mean, we would get towers of FedEx boxes every day with veg- baby vegetables from California. Oh, I had no idea. So that's how, that's where they were coming from. That's where they were coming okay. from. Can you imagine mm-hmm. doing that today? With the carbon, you know, no, what a carbon it wouldn't be PC that would, and yet at all. <laughs> That's why the food was so good. Yes, and expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was outrageously expensive. I think in those days, which was 1984, it was thirty dollars for chicken and French fries. Is that right? Yeah. I was going to say, in a funny way, Jonathan was the master of simplicity. Absolutely. uh, And charged for it, right? I didn't realize it was that expensive. Mm. But yeah, the ingredients were amazing. So that was really my first introduction to a kitchen, you know, the open kitchen. It was just all that's right. The so first open kitchen, very exciting, and a real who's who of uh, clientele, right? So absolutely, you were doing well. There was no one that didn't come into that place, and you know, David Hockney, and Frank Stella's on the wall. I mean, real uh, Janori China, mm. you know, Cristoffel silverware, like. The, You're taking me way back because all of those so things, amazing. all of those things mattered then, right? Yes. It's a little bit different now with Brooklyn and a kind of a 
Brooklyn zeitgeist that does not include great art or, you know, crystal. But thank you for reminding me. Yes, it was continue. fun. <laughs> it was really fun and exciting. And so eventually I, you know, I, I really started getting uh, the itch to get in the kitchen. And so I asked Jonathan if I could just go in and do prep and see if it was something that I felt comfortable doing, if I wanted to continue. He, of course, said yes. And then I was not ready to make the financial commitment that one needs to to work in a kitchen. As opposed to front of the house. Yeah. I mean, and especially in a place like that, it was very lucrative to work in the front of the house. Back of the house, not so much. So I continually just went into kind of play. Eventually went to Peter Kump's. Very and, famous cooking school. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. In a three story rickety brownstone on 96th <laughs> Street. And then went to work at Union Square Cafe, front of the house. Wow. Still front of the house. So you, you chose really particular, very special, iconic restaurants to work in. Yes. By the way, Claudia, what did your parents think of all of this that you were destined for life in restaurants at the time? They were worried. Mm -hmm. And particularly because, well, not particularly, but my grandmother, they, they really didn't have much to say about it, but my grandmother was so against it. Working in kitchens is what immigrants did. Mm. And she was an immigrant. Where was she from? Uh, Sicily. So to her, it was going backwards. Okay. Well, I want to go backwards for a minute because you mentioned grandmother and there are so many women who want to go into the food world. I think it is imperative and fascinating to tell the story. So we get to hear your story about how this happened for you. But often in the show, I'll start with childhood memories and where you grew up and you mentioned Long Island, but who was in the kitchen and what were you eating and smelling and what, how much of a say did your grandmother have up until this point? My grandmother lived in the Bronx, Allerton Avenue, which is kind of like a Junior Arthur Avenue. And for people who are not familiar, it was like taking a trip to Italy to go to Arthur Avenue. Kind of still is, I believe. Uh, you know, just the most amazing pork stores and cheese stores and, you know, butchers. and It's the real deal. The real deal. And when my grandmother came to visit, it was so exciting because she would bring my two favorite things at the time, and I still adore them, pomegranates and fennel. Wow, really? Yeah. So and healthy. <laughs> so Mediterranean. <laughs> yes. Well, Sicily. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I just loved fennel, pomegranates, and fresh ricotta. She would bring that mm. also. And I don't know. It, it, she would just come and cook up a storm. And she was an okay cook. She wasn't a great cook. My mother <laughs> was a better cook. My mother ah. was an excellent cook. And Because my grandmother actually, during the Depression, when my mother and her sisters were growing up, had a job. She worked. And so my mother and her sisters did the cleaning and the cooking. Mm. And so my mother became an excellent cook. Um, and did she cook food in the Sicilian repertoire or was... Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So you really grew up with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
one of my favorite things was the the fennel with sardines and That's the toasted bread. Dish, yes. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I just love that dish with pasta. Yes, with pasta. Yep, and raisins too. And raisins, yes. raisins. Yeah, golden raisins. Put them everywhere. <laughs> so yeah, I did. I you know there was never a frozen or canned vegetable in our house. Mm. Um, I had to beg for iceberg lettuce. <laughs> it was always escarole or chicory of some kind. Romaine was the least exotic thing that we had. Um, There was always Swiss chard and uh, broccoli rob and Mm. like all those things. Like I grew up with that. And did you sit down every night as a family and eat together? Oh, yes. Imperative. Yeah. 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 It was the 60s. Yes. Um, So, yeah, I always and my mother loved cooking and eating. And so (laughs) my cousin loves to talk about how, you know, we would wake up and immediately start talking about dinner. Like the conversations (laughs) just always revolved around food. Oh, that's divine. Yeah. Yeah. Claudia, in your book, uh, speaking of your mother, you dedicate part of it to her, to Elvira. Mm -hmm. To the most creative person I know. Tell me more about that. Was it just about food or other things as well? She could knit like nobody's business. She actually had a small knitting business on the side. She knit children's sweaters and hats and sold them on Madison Avenue, you know, to like she was a very fine artist. Oh, she went to she was the first graduating class from FIT. Oh, that's remarkable. Isn't that fun? Yes, yes. And her job was to, she was a fashion illustrator, and she was illustrating pattern covers. Do you remember mm, back in the day when they were drawings on the covers of the oh, of yes. the patterns? Uh, and that's what she did. She could draw, she could knit, she could, she was just very handy. Like she, you couldn't put something in her hands without her, like, making it into something. She just had an incredibly creative mind. Yeah, like her daughter. <laughs> mm, I'm, I'm much more limited than than she was. Yeah, she she was quite amazing. Thank you. Claudia, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about your mother for sure, but also the fact that what your grandmother said, it was not a very prestigious thing for women to do in the 1980s, to be a chef or even work in a kitchen or restaurant. Uh, but clearly you are you know, a poster girl for making this something really desirable and successful and really paved the way for so many young women today. Thank you. Here's a cooking tip to share. This from my guest, Claudia Fleming. You know how I, I make a lot of caramel, right? So it drives me crazy when I see people put the sugar in the pot first and then put the water in because that promotes the sugar going up the side. So I always tell people put the water in first and then the sugar because it'll displace the water and It'll go up the sides and you won't, you don't need the brush dipping it in the water and all around the side. I've never done that in my life. I always put water first, then sugar, and I never have to brush the sides. The portion is a half a cup of water, a cup of sugar, and a tablespoon of corn syrup. 
light corn syrup. When you pour the sugar into the water, it starts to melt. You also don't get those dry pockets, which is also a concern if you're pouring the water on top of the sugar. Water first. From Claudia's Kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. So we have established that your mother was incredibly creative and that your grandmother was a good cook, but she was almost concerned for your choice for your career to to stay in restaurants. But so what happened to Gems? It seems like there was kind of a, a moment, though, that you knew was right for you. You know, it was so fashionable. Like it, it was the beginning of cooking becoming fashionable, I think. Before jams, or at least in my recollection, restaurants were French. And they were very formal, a little stuffy, and, you know, incredibly classic. And they... It was hard to have a good time. It was, Yeah. Yeah. They weren't cutting it up. <laughs> um, and I think Jonathan changed that. Along with the food and the decor came a kind of lifestyle change that yes. was significant. It was really yes. the California vibe. And and again, it was the 80s. There was lots of fun to be had. You know, there were discos. There, You know, it was that era. Studio 54. Studio 54. But Jonathan was ahead of his time, not only for that, but because the three major managers, chefs, what have you, in the kitchen were women. Exactly. Tell us more. And yes. that was also, a, and they, it was an open kitchen. So it yes. was very um, obvious that this was a choice. Helen Chardak, Helen left the industry mm -hmm. to raise a family. There, uh, Stephanie Linus, who is a writer. Absolutely. She writes lots of cookbooks. Yes. Yep. And Gail, whose name is escaping me right now. Good Lord. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. Gail Arnold. So they were my role models. I didn't know women didn't work in the kitchen. Ah, interesting. Right? It's all yeah. that context. And were they doing savory, hotline? Oh, or, yes. Or, or pastry? The pastry chef was a man who was Nancy Silverton's boss. Oh, fascinating. And of course, right? Nancy Silverton is an extraordinary restaurateur and chef in California. And yeah. my idol. Okay. Definitely going to be asking you about people mm -hmm. who really inspired you. So Nancy is one of them. Good choice. Yes. So so tell us a little bit more. Well, so you went from Jams to... I Yeah, I went from Jams to Union Square. So Michael Romano was the chef there then. Another Actually, iconic a little place. later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. From La Caravelle, I believe Michael came oh, from. He was, right. Yes. And pretty sure there weren't any women on the line at Union Square at mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. But I was undaunted and I, you know, I that's what I was going to do. So, of course, I was in Garmanger and went away for a summer. I was going through a divorce and so wanted to get out of New York and just needed a break and went to Aspen. Mm -hmm. Gordon's was the name of the restaurant. He was part of Jonathan's group, group. Mm -hmm. and 
so Jonathan hooked me up out there and I lived out there for a summer and my roommate had Nancy Silverton's book on the bookshelf and I read it forwards and backwards and backwards and forward. <laughs> and so it sort of got me interested in the pastry thing. I didn't really have any intention of pursuing it. It was just fascinating to me. So when I went back to New York, Michael Romano said to me, well, I don't have anything available in the kitchen, but the pastry chef needs an assistant if you want to do that until I have something available. Sure. wanted to learn anything I could. And you had devoured Nancy's book at that point, so yes. you knew something. I knew something. And, you know, I, I – well, we'll get to that later. But, yeah, so I never left. That was it for me. Like, I, you know, I started cooking very late. I was like 30. So, you know, the guys on the line were young and strong and fast and <laughs> mean. Yeah, those were the days. Yeah. The mean guys in the kitchen. I think but that's But eventually, changed. actually, who was in the kitchen at that point? There was a woman who eventually became the sous chef. Yeah. There was something also about being in pastry that was more autonomous mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. being on the line, which is so regimented. And so it, it's more assembly line oriented than pastry. And yet that is more exacting in other ways. Yes. Right? So they're two really very different disciplines. Yep. But so it was at Union Square Cafe that you realized that you loved pastry and this was really your thing. And there is a sort of elegance about pastry, I think. I'm trying to relate back to the ballet. But look, you became so famous all over America because you became the pastry chef at Gramercy Tavern. And yes. that's really where your reputation yes. started. And Claudia, were you among the first to create these kind of salty, caramel, chocolatey things and to really shift the flavor palette of what a dessert even was? Can we say that you're kind of responsible for that? that that's what they tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit. Who was the chef there then? And Tom Colicchio. Okay. Well, another superstar. Who had just come back from France and I think doing a stage at Michel Bras, who was incorporating a lot of herbs into his desserts. Mm. And so Tom was very heavily influenced by that. And so I was very influenced by that. And I guess I I just felt like, well, if savory herbs can make their way into dessert, then why can't other elements of savory, the, you know, savory pantry? That's fascinating to me. That that is how it came about. You know, I remember when I was in France in 1982, I went to Trois Girl and also had one dessert so simple that blew me away. But this was a little bit before uh, the time that you're talking about, but it was an open-faced apple tart, very thinly sliced apples, baked, glazed, but in the middle was a compote of cooked down apples and fresh tarragon. And I just never forgot it. Yeah. You know, it was kind I, of mind-blowing and also informed a little bit about the way I started to think. But I am not a pastry chef. And so this is – so you decided to go from herbs to the more savory. And were you incorporating other kind of weird things? Like did, was there so. cumin seed in your dessert or, what kind or of fennel? Absolutely. I was candying <laughs> fennel and, you know, serving it with blood oranges, you know, sort of a riff on that classic – 
salad with arugula and fennel and blood oranges and olives. Um, is that Sicilian? Yes, it yes, is. <laughs> yes. I think it's Sicilian. Your it is or, or, Right. Yeah. Close enough. Yeah. You know, putting che- cheese with things, you know, making sweet cheese souffles. So you really totally busted the boundaries of what a traditional dessert would be and even... The, some of these desserts and flavors you're talking about are almost like transitions from one course to the other. So I, in fact, that even relates to the name of your book, The Last Course is Supposed to Desserts. Desserts, Wait yeah. yeah. It only says desserts in the subtitle. Yeah. Definitely by design, yes. <laughs> so it's a whole, so you really helped us think about dessert and sweet things and the last course in a completely new way. And you did that for how many years? You were at Gramercy Tavern for... I was there for eight years. Mm-hmm. And it got three stars. It was a very mm-hmm. important restaurant in the world. It was an amazing place to work. Again, another pivotal restaurant in the restaurant canon. We were trying to bring a more casual, democratic way of a fine dining experience to people and very relaxed and comfortable and, you know, hospitable environment and a very caring environment. Which is Danny Meyer's style, of course, and also Tom's and also yours. This was before the age of uh, Instagram, but you were really creating food that people were talking about. Were there one or two desserts on the menu that you really wanted to take off, but you couldn't? Yeah. They, oh, what, what were they? And actually, after I left... They didn't take it off for many years. Um, The coconut tapioca. So it was coconut tapioca with passion fruit caramel, passion fruit sorbet, coconut sorbet, and basil syrup. Oh, only you. (laughs) It Yes, it has become one of my signature desserts. Beautiful. And you whispered to me before that you actually don't like cake. I know. I know. What do we do with that, Claudia? I know. Layer cakes. I don't, I don't like layer cakes. Mm. I don't know why. I, well, actually, I do know why. So every Sunday after Mass, we went to Entenmann's. The Entenmann's factory was in the next town from where I grew up. This is in Long Island. This is in Long Island. Uh-huh. And we would go to the Entenmann's factory and my mother would buy seven cakes, one for each night. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Oh, I love that. Oh, yeah. And then we'd go home (laughs) and she would cut them all up into smaller pieces and make like variety packs. And then they'd all go in the freezer and every night a variety pack would come out of cakes from Entenmann's. And I think- This is a riot. I know. She was, but I'm telling you, she was pretty funny. So endearing. And Mm -hmm. I think it kind of ruined me. I I don't. Or or inspired you to go. To uh, do something differently. To do something related, but but (laughs) more inspired, right? Yeah. So we have her to thank again. Claudia, that's very funny. Tell me about women uh, in the restaurant kitchen then and now. And do you want to encourage women to become pastry chefs? And if so, how do you want them to go about it? I want to encourage everyone to follow their passion, whatever that is. And even if it's just for a year or two, it's a really, really hard way to make a living. 
I mean, it's probably not as hard these days because there are many more restaurant tours like Danny Meyer who make it their mission to make working in a restaurant kitchen a more humane place. And you see more and more women in kitchens and just more and more women doing whatever it is they want these days, thankfully. But in the age of Instagram, where no one reads, I would encourage people to read more. Going back to reading Nancy's book, Forwards and Backwards, Backwards and Forwards, I knew how to make mousse before I made mousse. I knew recipes. I knew techniques. I knew methods before anybody showed me because I was reading books. I was reading three different versions of how people made mousse. I was comparing and contrasting even before I was cooking, really. And I think that that doesn't happen now. I think people just look at pictures on Instagram mm. and it's much more about how things look than about technique and how they taste. That is a brilliant piece of wisdom. So I want to encourage everyone to devour the last course, mm -hmm. the desserts of Gramercy Tavern, and you too will know so much and can even taste some of the food and the dishes before you actually even eat them. There's a lot to learn from reading for sure. Claudia, when we come back, I want to hear a little bit about some of the challenges in the kitchen uh, when you went to open a restaurant with your husband, uh, the North Fork Table, which became so acclaimed, and just some of the personal challenges that you faced. If you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Claudia, you met your husband at Tribeca Grill. Yes. And Jerry Hayden was a very accomplished chef, very beloved. And uh, the two of you really had a love affair for a very long time, both as husband and wife, and also as co-owners of this amazing restaurant, uh, the North Fork Table and Inn, mm -hmm. that the two of you started many years ago. And it was really the place to go on Long Island. Um, how did you meet? And how many years ago was that, that the restaurant opened? Um, well, we met at Tribeca Grill. I, you know, at the same time as I was waiting tables at Union Square, I was staging at Montrachet. So oh, that's wow. where I met Drew. Um, and Deborah Ponsek was the chef there at the time. Another, another woman, another woman. amazing role model. And so I got to know Drew during that brief period. And so when he opened Tribeca Grill, he called me and asked me if I would be willing to go to Tribeca Grill. And I said, yes. And that's where I met Jerry, who was at the time doing double duty as the pastry chef and a sous chef. Wow. So <laughs> yes, incredibly talented, incredibly talented. Um, so basically I was executing his dessert menu and uh, learned a great deal but not nearly as much as I needed to know to be a pastry chef. But um, 
so that was in 90, because then I went to France in 91, 92, came back, bunch of odd jobs. And then in 94, Gramercy opened. Um, and then Jerry and I bumped into each other at one of the Beard Awards that I was nominated, took three times before I won. So it was one of those years, I don't remember which. And we were just, you know, hi, great to see you, you know, hadn't seen each other in over 10 years, I think. Oh, that yeah. I didn't realize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oh, let's get together for dinner. He called me a year later. <laughs> <laughs> no rush, just a year. Um, but then, you know, it was very fast after that. We were married in within a year or two, within two years after that. And then he had a restaurant called Amuse and he separated from his partner and I was no longer working at Gramercy Tavern and we went out east to look for a second home and we were driving back and he says to me, you know, we can't afford both. We can't have a New York place and a place out here. And neither one of us was tied to anything. And I said, well, let's just give it a shot. Like, let's just come out here and, you know, live. We can consult, which is what we were both doing at that time. So we did that for a bit. And unbeknownst to me, he started looking for places to open a restaurant. Incredible. You were such pioneers. Such pioneers. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right? Because now, of course, um, the North Fork of Long Island is like the place to be and beautiful and farms and Exploding. there's so much happening there. But not when you went out nope. and you created this gorgeous restaurant with very sophisticated food and everyone came. And everyone came. Everyone came. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, it was amazing. It was really incredible. Um, Those were very happy years for both of you. Yes. But Claudia, then something very tragic happened to Jerry and to you, way too young. So Jerry had ALS. Mm -hmm. He was diagnosed with ALS. Yep. At, you know, he was 46 mm -hmm. when he was diagnosed. He was 50 when he died. Um, but, uh, you know, it started with him not being able to hold a pan mm. and, you know, cramping and just feeling exhausted and weak. And he went was tested and tested positively. And it was devastating. Of course. I mean, Jerry mm. knew nothing but cooking. It was all he ever wanted to do and was so in his element and so happy to be cooking every day. You know, he's on the line every night. And, you know, I often have said it's, there's that very famous uh, scientist whose name, of course, escapes me, who also had ALS, but but lived for, I don't know, 40 or so years with it, lived a very long time. It doesn't do anything to your brain. Mm. So, you know, this scientist could continue working and achieving and continue his lifelong work. Whereas the thing that meant the most to Jerry was taken away from him. And he just felt completely useless for years and then turned his efforts into fundraising and awareness. He became very, very famous for for that yes. and really gave yes. the 
disease, a condition, a, a national identity. Absolutely. And, and it was gorgeous to watch what he was able to accomplish. And there's no one more generous or there, I don't feel there's any industry more generous than the restaurant industry. I mean, you give them a cause and they will just go after it and raise money. And so many of our friends and colleagues were very instrumental in helping him raise awareness and um, money for ALS. Mm, so research. beautiful. Yeah. And so hard for for you. So I believe it's about five years ago, mm-hmm. Claudia. Mm-hmm. And then you just told me that your mother died shortly after. So Two months after, two Jerry. Months. And she had Alzheimer's. Mm. So I had one losing their mind and one losing their body. Simultaneously, I had the two most important people in my life so disappearing before my eyes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So what is it about you? What are your extraordinary strengths that you were able to carry on? And, and I think you kept the restaurant for a while. I did. I, I just sold the restaurant in January. That's big news. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Kind of the end of one chapter. And Claudia, what are you thinking about now? What feels meaningful to you right now? I'm exploring right now. I'm not 100% sure. Of course, it'll involve cooking. I just got another book deal. Yay. Just got announced today. Just announced today. Just announced today. Yes, I just got a text from my publisher. So I, I think it was in response to the response to the last course that I was able to get the second book deal. But, you know, a lot of years between the two. Um, I think this one will be definitely more focused on baking and desserts, not restaurant-y desserts. Mm. Um, They're really quite different, aren't they? Yeah, they are so different. Claudia, you may have to have some recipes for layer cake. I know. Or something inspired from Entenmann's. And, you know, I imagine that I'm going to wind up loving them. Does that ever happen to you? Like the thing that you dread doing the most, you wind up either being the best at or finding the most pleasure at. And it's happened to me so many times in my career, and I I can't even be specific at this point. You know, maybe it's making tart shells, and you're like, oh, I have to make tart shells. And (laughs) then you're like, and now I'm obsessed. I love making tart shells. Well, I do want to go back to that quote that we started the show with, that you have a deranged sense of perfectionism. Do you agree? I mean, that was said in such a loving way. I I, I hope so. (laughs) I mean, I think that's part of doing pastry and part of being a dancer. Yes. There we go. There's the gorgeous connection I was looking for. The biggest connection is technique, right? It's repetition. It's repetition. It's repetition. And repetition is an opportunity to do something better. And that's you know, 75% of dancing and 75% of cooking, if not more, you know, you, you muscle memory is, you know, every bit as important with dancing as it is with cooking. So for me, that's what I took from my experience as a dancer was the passion for technique and the desire to always want to be better. That's perfect. Thank you. Claudia, do you have a legacy recipe to share? I know you mentioned something about the coconut tapioca, but would there be another one, one that you really want to be known for? The chocolate caramel tart. Yeah. The one with the salt, the sea salt on top and the salted caramel. Yeah. And that is in the book. That the is last in the course. book. Absolutely in the book. Yes. 
Yes. Thank you for that. And you mentioned a few people who have inspired you, obviously your mother and your grandmother and uh, Nancy Silverton. Absolutely. And are there other people that you... I would have to say Tom Colicchio. Wonderful. Now, we do allow men's names on the show. (laughs) Good. (laughs) And my husband, of course, who taught me so much. Mm, He's still very thought about and talked about and loved, Claudia. thank you. Yeah. Yeah, he was something. So this is a question, this has gone so quickly, but a question I ask all my guests. Claudia, what does One Woman Kitchen mean to you? Ooh, I guess for me, one woman is not one woman. It is a woman, right? So it's all women. And the kitchen is for all women, all men too. But I mean, I do feel that women's cooking is very different from men's cooking. It's definitely less from the head and more from the heart. And there's an element about pleasing people. And I mean, of course we have egos, but it's it's less about that and just more about giving pleasure. Claudia, I'm sure so many people would want to connect with you, certainly to get the recipe for the chocolate caramel chart and and maybe just to be in touch. Do you have a website or Instagram account? I do have a website. It's chefclaudiafleming.com. And the same with my Instagram is at chefclaudiafleming. And you can buy my book at the website and I can sign it for you and send it to you. That's wonderful. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thank you so much, Claudia. Thank you, Roseanne. This has just been so delightful. You are so lovely. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to have you with me in my kitchen. And thanks to all of you for listening to me and Claudia. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold. And check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosangold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.